listening to the Dr. Claude Kirshner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirshner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. One hundred nineteen Fortune five hundred companies, global five hundred companies, that's in the entire world, have some form of operations in China. Whereas just ten years ago, it was thirty-seven. So the question remains: the next five years, what's this chart going to look like? Would you be okay walking into a meeting with a group of people from a different country and asking them to partner with you so you can open up a distribution facility in their neighborhood? Management is one of the most dynamic and most fluid business topics you can imagine because of the rapid pace of change happening in our world. And this is one of them, globalization and the international environment, potential of operating in a global environment. So sometimes I have these limiting beliefs, these confines that I put on my, my own career of saying, well, why can't I, I work with a business that operates internationally? Think about the, the issues it would be with selling a product. If you had a really good product, it's not about demand. It's just about opening another store. So your job wasn't to go out and be a salesperson. Your job was to go out and find a general environment and a task environment with a good internal environment to just go open up another store. And if you can do that effectively, you know, just these, these organizations that are growing, thriving. It's not about do we have a good product. It's just about where do we open up the product next. That's the power of the international potential of businesses. So that's how as managers, if you're in your organization right now or you're leading an organization in the future, you should ask yourself, what are the opportunities to operate internationally? And if somebody says, oh, we don't do that, we're in construction, we build homes. Well, why can't we go to uh, Cuba? Why can't we go to the Bahamas? Why can't we go to these other areas in Mexico that are close to us that we can just, maybe our product will be worthwhile and be open-minded to that kind of stuff. And why is that important today that we understand as managers and leaders that we have something called the global environment that we need to be aware of, especially when it comes to change dynamics, politics. Think about the, the war in Ukraine and how it's impacting our everyday lives here. Some people may say it's not, some people may say it is. The globalization component of business, it's sort of the economic environment, which factors into the global environment because our United States economy and inflation has an impact on business in China. You think about the supply chain constraints because of political mm -hmm. instability, because of issues going on with the economic outlook in the country and that obviously played into a huge factor in his personal management of his career and believe me there's there are organizations that are doing the same thing they're choosing to leave a country because of global factors global issues there's also a lot of positive things that are going on with the global environments to be able to control them in a sense and a lot of times if you can play that game sometimes you can you can add a competitive advantage to you and your organization because you have the patience, because you have the bureaucratic knowledge to operate in China. A lot of companies are leaving. You say, well, you know what? I have an inside loop there and I can operate there. So that would be what we would call a tool to positively impact the organization utilizing the global environment and take our organization to the next level. And certainly now there's so many opportunities to operate globally. This one is one of the most exciting in literature because it's dynamic and it's changing all the time. This is getting a little bit more technologically driven. 
is more on the cutting edge of management. So the global environment, no matter whether you're leading in the US or whether you're leading internationally, you're still planning, organizing, leading, and controlling. It doesn't change. You're just doing it at a, at a bigger scale. Define international management. It's a management of business operations conducted in more than one country. MNCs, multinational corporations. It's just essentially an organization that operates in two different countries. Amount, the percentage of revenue isn't 1% this country and 99% this country. It's more like 80% here, 20%. So there's a threshold of being a multinational company where you're not just selling one pair of shoes to India once a year. You call yourself a multinational company. Now there's a percentage of operational capacity that needs to be done in a different country to call yourself a multinational company. The global mindset, ability of managers to appreciate and influence individuals, groups, organizations, and systems that possess different social, cultural, political, institutional, intellectual, and psychological characteristics. There's some fun stuff to talk about in the dynamics of globalization. The extent to which trade and investments, information, social and cultural ideas, and political cooperation flow between countries. Harnessing the effectiveness of globalization. 2009, 2019, look at the difference between the percentage of shifting geography of global 500 companies towards just China alone. 119 Fortune 500 companies, global 500 companies, that's in the entire world, have some form of operations in China. Whereas just 10 years ago, it was 37. So the question remains, the next five years, what's this chart gonna look like? The paternal nature of a, a Korean culture, paternal nature, parental role is very important. And if a father passes away or a father has a, an image or a legacy that's negative, it, it reflects the entire family. There's a paternal nature to it. Whereas in the U.S., you, know, you have people that have lost their fathers or their fathers could be in jail or their fathers failed in business, and it doesn't affect their ability to achieve in their career nearly as much as it would in a different country. So that's just an example of what, it's just, it's different. These global cultures, different value systems, whatever it looks like, cognitive dimensions, social dimensions, and psychological dimensions to a global mindset. Would you be okay walking into a meeting with a group of people from a different country and asking them to partner with you so you can open up a distribution facility in their neighborhood? Would you be okay with that? Would that be something you'd be comfortable with? What would you do prior to going into that meeting to learn a little bit about the culture? Would you awkwardly try to kiss a French person three times on the cheek who was supposed to do? Or would you walk up to them and shake their hand normally and ask them, is this is this an appropriate way to greet you from your country? I want you to respect. It, it, and this is this is important. Versus when they come over here, you know, how, how do they treat you? We, we don't we think a lot about there's something called ethnocentrism, where we think that our culture is superior than another culture. But isn't it so interesting that there are people that have cultures and we just expect that you know sometimes in America they need to conform to how we behave versus I need to learn a different language or or operate a little bit better even in my own country. And I think that's respectful. In a lot of other countries, they're more aware of our culture and more respectful of our culture in their own country. Like they will treat us like Americans in Africa. Whereas in America, a lot of times we don't even, we're not even aware of what other cultures are, nor do we think about treating people as they would want to be treated in their own country. So I, it's kind of a rant there, but you can understand these globalization, cultural values, the changing international landscape, so China produces a lot of products, where India is producing a lot of intellectual property, a lot of software developers, they're doing a lot of supply chain logistics. They're, they're very uh, well-schooled, and India is exporting a lot of intellectual property. And I have the opportunity 
uh, with some funding to hire a digital assistant. And there is a clear platform where I can find a digital assistant that works in a different country, that speaks great English, that works great, that is cheaper than somebody here in the US. Would, would I utilize them? First of all, let me stop for a second and say, would I even be aware that that exists as a manager, as a leader of an organization? We have to be aware that it exists. And then the next question is, is it right for our organization that we utilize those kinds of services outside of our country? It's called comparative advantage through specialization. That they're better at that, so it makes more sense for me to specialize at this and for me to buy that from them, and then they buy this from me. Like I know in the United States we produce a lot of entertainment, like film industry. The actors and the credibility of our actors here are really good and we focus on them, whereas we may buy our costumes for the actors elsewhere. We bring them in. So we export films, translate them to different languages, but we import goods like uh, textiles. So we import textiles, we export filmmaking. It's just a good example of a comparative advantage. The answer to the question is not always straightforward. And as managers, we just have to ask ourselves a question. Is it available? And then the next question is, should we utilize it? Uh, hopefully we'll know if it's available. The second question isn't always yes. Just because they can do it cheaper doesn't mean it's right for us in our organization. So a multinational company, corporation receives more than 25% of its total sales revenues from operations outside of the parent home country. Characteristics managed as integrated worldwide business systems controlled by a single management authority regarding the entire world as one market. We have a global multinational perspective. And instead of focusing on our internal canons pointing at oneself, we're focused on what is the next opportunity in the next nation and how can we adapt to that culture to create a value proposition there that people will like. Then a lot of times in multinational companies, they have to adjust their business model slightly. Has anybody been to a McDonald's in a different country? Is their menu different than it is in the United States? Why? How these multinationals manage their brands in different countries. It's probably really important for them to research these different countries. If you're going to operate a different culture, a different dynamic, a different environment, you have to understand what, what's going on here and adapt your business models. Is ethnocentrism, we talked about is valuing our own culture above others. Uh, polycentric companies are oriented towards the markets of individual foreign host countries. Geocentric companies are world-oriented and favor no specific country. Bottom of the pyramid that we, what, what's going on is there's a lot of people that are on this cusp of poverty. And there's a lot of great social, economic organizations out there that are creating spaces for the people that don't have a lot of money, which is the large mass amount of the world. So the reality is there's a ton of people out there that still buy products that don't make nearly as much money, and there's goods and services that are being created for that market. So there's particular cell phones that are being manufactured that are very, very, very cheap, $10 cell phones that can be used. There are types of shoes that are being created from manual or recycled material that can be sold for a dollar, $2, and they sell them in masses. So understanding that bottom of the pyramid and understanding what it is that they're looking for and being able to provide a market for that is also a managerial initiative that we should take as, as managers. There's actually organizations, and thank you for that, that's exactly what the, they're actually recycling human fecal matter to produce fertilizer for farmers. That is actually really it's great fertilizer because they don't have to use, they don't have to purchase the pesticides. And they, I think they get it free. So they're capable of being uh, creating something as bad as that 
and producing something and meeting a need within the marketplace and being funded by the government to do it because it just creates a much more sustainable ecosystem that we talked about. And there's all sorts of ways that we talk about the advancement of technology as being, oh my gosh, my kids are on the phone more and there's so much to do and now people are WhatsApping me and Twittering me and Facebooking me and Instagramming me and emailing me and calling me and texting me. And, but the reality is that is also creating a lot of opportunities for people who are poor and what technology can do for uh, the access to water in different nations and clean water, not just access to water, schooling, education, just putting a, a simple internet connection into a classroom can, can create learning like you wouldn't believe. And there's all sorts of different initiatives going on out there to serve that bottom of the pyramid that is, is really helping um, our society. So think about that as managers. How can we serve that population? And in certain cultures, and we're talking about globalization, we value different things. Materialism versus the family togetherness. What we dispose of, we think is trash, is another man's treasure, is truly valuable to other people. People who come down to, to Florida, they see the peacocks and they're like, oh, this is unbelievable. But for us, we're like, these things are annoying. <laughs> and we want nothing to do with them. So that it plays products and, and value systems as well. That if you could figure out how to get uh, peacocks over to China, that would be a hit. <laughs> or if you could figure out a way to get palm trees to grow in Iceland or Greenland, the, that would be a hit. It's how can we bring a new product or something cool and unique to this particular market that they would value more so than this market. And, think, and also creating different supply chains and different ways in which to distribute that that are creative. A joint venture is really just simply a way, and we're talking about globalization. Joint venture is a good way to get into the global markets is to do a joint venture with another organization. A company shares cost and risk with another firm, typically in the host country, to develop new products, build a manufacturing facility, or set up a sales and distribution network. So as opposed to starting from scratch in uh, Mexico, I can go and find an organization that does something similar to what I do, and we can set up a new organization or entity called a joint venture that will allow me to have a head start. And that joint venture will provide a lot of intellectual understanding, a lot of cultural value that I, as a, a white, middle-aged American, isn't going to understand in Mexico. Where I, I need to set up with a, a local guy on the streets, somebody who's got some some relationships, network, and, and leverage that for the best use of my business. That's just another way, again, a tool as managers that we use when we go into other countries. So if next week you're on a team at Airbus where your organization say, hey, can we come up with some creative ideas to launch our whatever and whatever, you say, well, I, I want the joint venture. Have we thought about that? It's just a, a tool. Now more than ever, a probably difficult time to be uh, looking to develop a distribution channel with Russia. Probably not a good time for the United States company. Likely some political risk going on with that. Think about how people, this culture, which is, again, controversial, but the people who got, they got canceled on social media when they were talking about certain aspects of the, the COVID shutdown and the pandemic, uh, celebrities were canceled. They were just taken off of the radar because they were a little bit extreme in some of the things they said about how certain policies are made. It's, it's risk. It's, there's political risk where, I think about, again, you operate as an American country and a nation like uh, Arabia 
Yeah, so if you go over there and you do certain things against their culture, they'll shut you down. Shut you down real quick because of some of the beliefs and the culture that they have. It's political risk. Whereas in certain countries like the United States, we care more about capitalism. The government has less control. The government tries to not inflict as much rules and regulations into the private institutions so the private institutions can run themselves. Do you think that if the government just allowed organizations to do whatever they want, what, what could go wrong there? They could steal money, they could uh, not report their taxes appropriately, they could hire people at less than minimum wage. So there's a balance between political regulation and political deregulation. In certain countries, it's very high. In certain countries, it's very low, based on a perceived political uh, control over the, over the local economy. So these are just things to consider. Political risk is important. Preference for achievement, heroism, assertiveness, work, centrality, a little bit high stress, and material success versus femininity, values, relationships, cooperation, group decision-making, quality of life. Okay, so number one is Japan, masculinity. And number 10, like you said, is Sweden. Can you just see the, the difference between individualism, value for a loosely knit social framework in which individuals are expected to take care of themselves. Individualism. So the United States is number one on taking care of oneself. Corporate social responsibility is more effective for the organization in cultures like Costa Rica, Thailand, Mexico. If you market the fact that we're, we're doing these social initiatives, it has more value. Where in the United States, they're like, yeah, yeah, cool. The collectivist, what, what you think, when you think about collectivism, you think about the value, value of family, value of a, a neighborhood, value of a community, and that's very, very, very important. They do a lot of stuff together. Versus individualism, I got 3,000 Facebook friends and no new friends. Literally, I saw a t-shirt of a lady at the gym. Uh, she's nice, but she wears a t-shirt that no new friends. She'll say, hi to you. Is there any chance we can be friends one day? I guess you're just pretty much telling me there, there's no possibility for you to make any new friends. That's an individualistic quote. Whereas it's kind of funny, I'm watching a show called 60 Days In because I'm teaching in prison next uh, semester. So I'm very intrigued by prison. And in, in prison, it's a very collectivist culture. They really look, they, they, they form you know, units and they, they take care of each other in an odd kind of way. They, they form these coalitions and they really look at, it's kind of our, I believe from the anthropological perspective that we are in, inherently um, meant to live in community and to live in a collective community, which creates a stronger individual when you have tighter bonds within community. In certain countries, they value that. In some countries, we're getting away from it. So that's enough with that. Power distance, I think that's an important one. Level of acceptance, it's not a level of power, it's a level of acceptance of inequality in power among institutions, organizations, and people. If I stood up here right now and I said, you know what, I'm in charge. This is my class, stop clicking your pen, take sunglasses off your head, not looking at me like that, you're chewing your gum, I'm gonna throw that in the trash can, I don't like the way your arms are crossed, I'll cross my arms, but you can't cross yours. You go on and on. Like, how does that make you feel? Because in the United States, we probably have what would be a low level of acceptance of inequality. We're equal, we're the land of freedom. But certain countries, it's fully expected that a teacher can say those kinds of things and act that kind of way and present that kind of power. And people fall in line. They're okay with power differences, but inequality. It actually gives them peace, knowing that somebody else is in charge, and as long as they fall in line, they, they, they won't be called out. And it definitely plays well as managers and leaders is understanding how that, that power distance is in effect within an organization.
a lot of times you'll see people empower organizations, treat people and tell people what to do and how to do it. And you'll see people say, yes, ma'am, yes, no, sir, yes, sir. They'll do it and they don't even think about it. Whereas you come in and you just work for Google, you know, meeting on Google Meetup all the time. And, you know, your boss, you don't even know your boss. He's allowed to do whatever you want. And then you step into this other organization and it's weird. But for them, it's normal. The United States is right in the middle where we sort of accept power, but we sort of don't. But we lean more towards the don't accept power. And the most liberal people who do whatever the heck they want, they're like, hey, listen, don't let them sweet it. So if you want no rules <laughs> and no power distance between you and everyone else, where a lot of people see eye to eye within organizations, go to Sweden. And it's, this is why it's kind of fun because if you're thinking about going to do a business in another country, understanding Hofstede's value dimensions, understanding how the, what these dimensions are and how these other organizations rank in these different dimensions will probably help understand why they act certain ways and also how to act yourself in certain countries. This is a difference between a high context culture and a low context culture. People are sensitive to circumstances surrounding social exchange and a high context culture. So before we go to the, the countries that are a little bit more sensitive than others, it matters how you treat them and how that social exchange goes. Whereas low context cultures, I say, hi, you know, my name's Claude. Uh, I teach and I have two dogs. Tell me about yourself. Tell me, tell me like facts, just facts. Cool. I know everything about you and we're friends now and we can move on with that. That's low context. I just want to know. Who are you? What do you do for a living? And whereas a high context is more, uh, let's get to know each other. Let's sit down and have some quality time. So the highest context is a young man wanted to take a young lady out of the date. First of all, if that dad finds out who you are and you took his daughter out on a date, it's, it's over with. Like you're, you're not going to be allowed in the house. There's not a lot of room there. So think about when you're that young man uh, and you're approaching that household, the context in which you operate should be pretty well thought out. It shouldn't just be like, hey, dude, what's up? Where's your daughter? No, it's so funny. Any dad was a daughter can relate to that. But the, what the point of it is, it needs to be methodical. It better be respectful. And you better understand that this context that you provide and that exchange, you should take it seriously. Because it's as important as the business deal you're about to do. It's as important as the future relationship with that daughter that you're about to have, just that exchange alone. Whereas in Scandinavia, English, German, not nearly as important. So from a business perspective, that high context versus that low context, that's something you should study before you uh, approach different people in different cultures and, and understand what is the context? What do they want us to do? You know, shake their hand firm, not firm, shake their hand not at all, do I kiss them on the cheek? What, what is the tradition of that interaction? What kinds of questions would be appropriate to ask? Versus, should I just shut up and answer questions? Why are you asking all these questions? It's important. Don't ask inappropriate questions in a Chinese engaged business room in China. Like, probably like, why are you even talking? That, that plays into cultural intelligence. The CQ, isn't it funny? You got IQ, you got EQ. You have now they're coining this phrase CQ, cultural intelligence. So when you go to interview for a Fortune, a global 500 company that operates internationally, they may test you on your CQ. They may say, hey, what do you know about these countries and these places? How intelligent are you that you're able to adapt to those kinds of situations from a global perspective?